it's good to be back in the house of the Lord. And Summer and I very much enjoyed our little trip up to the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. We got to see a lot of cool stuff. Uh, and we are thankful that God has brought us back safely. I have been dealing with uh, some allergies the last few days, but uh, it is getting better. But I've got my little tissue pack up here just so I'm ready in sneezing and out of sneezing. All right. Okay, we're going to finish up Second Timothy this morning, and uh, that'll take us through chapter 4. I do want to back up just a little bit into the end of chapter 3 before we get going real good. Uh, that'll give us some context to what Paul is saying at the beginning of chapter 4. So if you look at Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is just telling Timothy, uh, keep holding on to the things that you've already learned, that you've been taught by your mother and your grandmother. Um, evidently, both of those figures in Timothy's life were very important in instilling this faith and this knowledge of the Bible. Uh, no doubt the Old Testament at that time, and then now as Timothy is later in his life, uh, possibly even already recognizing some of these inspired New Testament writers um, as such. So the the Old Testament was instilled in Timothy's heart from a young age, and he has grown up, and he is developing into this solid Christian leader. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. Keep holding on to those things, because deceivers... And their deceptions will continue to wax worse and worse. Uh, he then reminds Timothy of the inspiration of God's word, something we can all stand to be reminded of. Uh, God's word is useful, it's powerful, and we know from scripture that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Uh, simply put, it will change your life. Um, and we've seen it change lives time and time again. I've seen it change my life. Um, I am a firsthand account of what the Word of God can do. Paul says, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, the The Scripture is profitable for teaching everything necessary for salvation. There's nothing that you need to be saved that is not contained in the Holy Bible. Um, so we don't have to go looking anywhere else. Uh, no spiritual exploits, uh, no, nothing that the world gives you. Uh, it's not needed for salvation. It's all contained in the scripture. Um, it is God's word and it has his seal on it. Um, it's Profitable for doctrine, for reproof. The text itself is full of evidence that it's true. The Bible's prophecy is unmatched by any other religious text, anything in the world. Um, and two-thirds um, of the Bible is predictive prophecy. And about half of that has already been fulfilled. 
So we are looking at uh, this text that has the fingerprint, the watermark of the creator inside it. It is inspired by God, God breathed, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. If you fall down, if you start to backslide, it is useful for picking you back up and setting you on the right course, the course towards righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this really is how we become equipped as Christians. We take God's word, we read it, we study it, and we let it equip us. The thoroughly equipped is suited for God's work. We want to have inside us what the Bible is teaching so that we can call on that in any time of need. We know that Jesus did this. When he was being tempted by Satan himself, he reached back into the scriptures and he fought off that attack with scripture. Very sound idea there that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now we'll move into chapter four. We want to make sure that we retain this context of the scripture given by inspiration of God and useful for living for all of these things that he lists out. We will see Paul signing off in this last chapter, uh, signing off in the letter for sure, but also signing off with his life. He knows that he is about to meet his end. Uh, he's an old man and he's stuck in this Mamertine dungeon. It's cold, damp, uh, human feces, disease. It's not a good place to be. Yet we see him writing to Timothy, instructing him on how to lead the church. And it's, it's encouraging to see what heart Paul is taking in these circumstances. Now, even then, he understands that his departure is near. And he says that I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He knows that his life is just, there's more behind him than there is in front of him, uh, truthfully. So we'll see that. We'll see Paul giving Timothy more insight. Paul knows that his life is about to come to an end. Um, and just this spiritual giant is about to pass from his measly little body here on earth into glory. And that is where he's coming from right now. So we move into chapter four. He writes, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He says, I charge you, therefore. So again, we see Paul using this military word, charge, um, as if instructing Timothy on the battlefield. It's interesting to see this, um, and we've looked at it before in these two letters to Timothy. Who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom? The King James translates this verse as judge the quick and the dead. He's not talking about the people who are slow and quick. He's talking about those who are living and are dead. The New King James does a great job at translating that. And it's just easier for us to understand. Every person who's ever lived is divided into two categories for these purposes, the living and the dead. 
you either have lived or you are living. Okay, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying Christ is going to judge everyone, whether you've already passed along or you are going to pass along in the future. Uh, In John's gospel, Jesus said that the Father had committed all judgment to him. That's John 5.22. So we know that this is true. Uh, It's backed up in other scriptures. Who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Uh, All judgment is committed to Jesus Christ. You know, this should also be some motivation to us to obey his word, to take heed to what he has to say. Because he will give us our final judgment. So, I mean, to me, that says, hey, listen to what this guy says. So that, but also the fact that he's going to judge everyone should lend some credibility to what his word says. We can read what he says in the Bible. Um, That gives it great credibility. Now, what is this charge from Paul? I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. That's the charge. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. What an exhortation. Preach the word. And... You know, truthfully, he doesn't say preach from the word. He says preach the word. There is a difference between those two. You go through America and you ask pastors anywhere, hey, do you teach the Bible? They'd almost be offended if you asked them that that question. But the truth is, a lot of pastors and a lot of places teach from the Bible. They will use the Bible to support their claims They'll pick a verse and throw it up on the screen say, hey, this agrees with what I'm saying. You know, and that's that can be good sometimes. But preaching the word is different. What we do here is we open our Bibles, we go through it verse by verse, and I try to tell you what, what it is, what's happening here. Okay, give you some historical context, some application We are teaching the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Truly, there is a genuine hunger and a thirst for the word of God. Yes, things are getting worse and worse. We see that. But there is a thirst, especially among the young people. And I was in this situation. I was going around church to church looking for someone who would preach the word. I finally came here and I was like, oh my goodness, this is awesome. They're feeding me meat. Everywhere you go is milk, cotton candy, you know, what have you. But you go to a place where the pastor is opening up the word of God and teaching from it. And that satisfied my hunger. And I stuck around a little bit. And I'm still here. But seriously, I mean, we go around uh, the, the youth groups that kids go to. Many of them are feeding them cotton candy. It's milk. 
One of the biggest milk drinkers I know is my little brother, Chaney. He can down a gallon of milk. But there comes a point where he needs more than just milk in his body. He needs some chicken or some waffles. We had chicken and waffles last night. He needs some steak, something of substance besides that milk. When a baby is born, milk is all they need. And they take that in and they can use those nutrients and grow. They can grow to be a larger human. But there comes a point in their life when they need more than just milk. They'll move on to baby food. They'll move on to little cut up pieces of chicken nuggets. They'll they'll move on. And so it's important for the Christian in their walk to move on from milk, from baby food, onto solid food. So we need to take care to give that to people. But um, I did mention it briefly, but that was the situation that I found myself in when I got to college. I was going around town looking for a place to root myself. Um, I came here. Justin was preaching the Bible, uh, just teaching plainly out of the word, and it struck a chord. Um, I, I enjoyed it, and it satisfied my longing for some meat for the word of God. So don't neglect the preaching of the word. Paul writes, be ready in season and out of season. Ready is to be at hand or to be on standby. In season and out of season. Y'all remember the famous quote from Chuck Smith, blessed are the flexible, they will not break. Right? Be ready to bend, not break. Chrysostom says this about this verse, just as the fountains though none may draw from them, still flow on. And the rivers, though none drink of them, still run. So must we do all on our part in speaking, though none give heed to us. Whether somebody's listening or not, we got to be doing our part. We got to be still proclaiming the name of Jesus and the good news that comes with him. There are times when it feels like nobody's listening to us. I've been there. I know that everyone in this room has. We have to keep speaking the truth in love, regardless of who's listening. Jeremiah continued to prophesy to a generation that would not listen to him. And in this verse, there's also the sense that we should not be ready only when it's convenient to us, but also when it's inconvenient. Whether in prison, like Paul was, or free, like Timothy was, in danger, or in safety, in church, or out of church, whenever and wherever the Lord's work requires it, we must find ourselves ready. How do we do that? The Word of God. You equip yourself for a good work with the Word of God. What are we supposed to be ready to do? He says, Stay ready. Be ready in season and out of season. You should be ready to convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Notice that this follows very closely with what he's saying in chapter 3, verse 16. The word of God is profitable for all of these things that we're supposed to be ready to do. Very telling. 
Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Convince. Uh, the Greek word there speaks to tell a fault. Okay, so you're pointing out a fault, either in yourself or someone else, in love, of course. So tell a fault. You show someone what is wrong. Rebuke means to reprove or to admonish or charge sharply. So you say, this is what's wrong. Now, this is what you do to correct it. Now, look, exhort, parakleo. It has this idea of coming alongside. You exhort them. You encourage them in the way that they should go. Uh, It doesn't help as much if I say, hey, stop doing that. You're like, okay, well, I can, okay, I stopped. Now what? It leaves you hanging. What if I say, hey, stop doing that, but instead do this? Then that gives you a new objective to point towards, and it's not leaving you flapping in the wind. So come alongside them. Uh, Paracleo, coming from the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit as a comforter and as Jesus as the advocate for us. It has this friendly kind of connotation. With all long-suffering and teaching. This is a labor of love, teaching. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. I don't try to come in one Sunday a month and knock it out of the park and then just kind of show up the rest of the Sundays. Um, I instead want to show up and just chip away at the Bible with you. Okay, I want to go through it. I want to expound on it. And if I look back, we'll say if you look back one year from today, January 2nd, 2023, and you are in a different place spiritually, specifically more matured, hopefully, than you were today, then that's a win. We're just chipping away. Um, I, You're like, obviously, you don't knock it out of the park any Sundays. I know that. I know. But we're just trying to chip away at this Bible together and uh, maybe grow a little bit in the process. With a consistent diet of God's word, we do have spiritual growth. Um, it's it's a consistent diet. Uh, me and Summer are talking about cutting back on what we eat a little bit, lose a little bit of weight. If we have one grilled chicken breast and one cup of rice one night, we can't say, yippee, we did it. Because that doesn't do much in the long run. It has to be a consistent thing that we do over and over, day in and day out, in season and out of season whether it's convenient or not. So it's a steady diet of God's word that we need. Teaching with all long-suffering. That is the goal. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
great exhortation from Paul. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. At some point, and I would argue that we are beyond this point, people will seek out what they want to hear instead of seeking out the truth. They will seek the things that make them feel good, feel warm and fuzzy inside, and not the things that challenge them, that put them on the spot, that call them sinners. They will seek the things that are easy for them to handle. They want to hear that they're perfect just the way they are. I'd love to hear that too. It's just not true. That's the only problem with it. It's not true. We are not perfect the way that we are. Uh, and then you got to throw out the S word, sinners. Can't be a sinner. You got to throw out the H word. That's a hot topic. Nobody likes talking about that. So you're, you're left with nothing of substance. They will heap up for themselves teachers, selecting them on how good they make them feel. But according to their own desires, they are the Lord of their lives. Jesus is not the Lord of their lives. Their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They no longer want to hear the truth. They want to hear stories and fables that will scratch their itching ears. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul gives an exhortation to Timothy that we would do well to heed as well. He says, don't get caught in the trap. Don't put stock in something just because it makes you feel good. Rather, be watchful. Keep an eye on the things going on around you, the things that people are teaching. This watchful means sober-minded, and it's used in other places. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So be careful, be watchful, because these delusions are worsening. Watchful can mean calm and collected in spirit. So, but you be calm and collected in spirit in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We see in all things, again, it's bringing back this idea of constant readiness and watchfulness. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. A preacher of the gospel is going to come up against hardships. The moment that we step foot behind the pulpit, we inherit a giant target on our back. And we need your prayers now more than we ever have before. But truthfully, there will be afflictions. And another thing that Paul has written to Timothy about is bearing up under afflictions. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Paul is encouraging Timothy 
to remain true to his calling of leading the church in Ephesus and to fulfill his ministry. Just a little encouragement there. Verse 6, he writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He knows he's about to pass on. And he's at the end of his course now, but he also realizes that Timothy is just getting going good. So he is trying to pass on what he knows to Timothy, trying to encourage him. Paul says that he has fought the good fight there in verse 7 and kept the faith. He has no doubt stayed strong under many threatening circumstances. We read about a list there in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Many circumstances would have challenged his faith. Oh God, why is this happening to me? Why would a loving God allow such things to happen to me? And that's a question that we hear asked all the time. And it leads some people astray. What you have to realize is that we live in a fallen world. God did not create us as we are now. He created us perfect, without sin. It was our hearts that turned away from God. He didn't turn away from us. And he continues to bring us back and back to him. But from the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. He had already decided, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to save them. I'm going to intervene on their behalf before he even created us. He knew that we would turn away from him. And he chose to create us in his image anyways. It's not him that is heaping affliction on us in this world. It is the sin that is so rampant in our world, uh, traced back from Adam, that brings death, disease, thorns, all of these things that afflict us. But Paul has stayed strong under all of these circumstances. He says he's kept the faith. He hasn't blasphemed the name of Jesus. What an interesting dynamic it would be for Paul to get to heaven and see one of the Christians that he put to death. That's interesting. The the apostle of grace. He uses grace more than anyone else in the New Testament. Grace is very close to this man's heart. Um, And he lives by grace day by day, no doubt. He's saying, I've had a good run, but you're just getting started, Timmy. Be watchful and stay in the work that God has for you. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is being faced with this reality of his imminent death. The time of his departure is at hand. And it's funny how, at a funeral, all of a sudden, when your loved one has passed away, you're all gathered together as a family, the Cowboys losing last night doesn't matter. Everything fades away into its proper place. 
it is, it's crazy how that works. And everyone there with you is experiencing the same thing. Suddenly you're faced with this reality of death. For every 100 people that are born, there's 100 people that die. Death is 100% certain for each and every one of us. And when you see that more closely, it puts everything into perspective. You kind of just have to sit back and think, if that were me lying in the casket, where would my eternal destiny be? It's just a question that comes to mind. Um, it has to. That's how we're hardwired. We're wired to think about that. And you know that that is going to be you at some point in the future. But being faced with that reality, can you say that you have fought the good fight and that you have kept the faith like Paul can? I certainly hope that I'm able to say that. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here's this giant of a man, truly a spiritual giant, trapped in this ragged body that's been beaten, killed, shipwrecked, bitten, this ragged body getting ready to be set free. He has already lost his life to Christ many, many years ago when he appeared to him on that road to Damascus. That's when he lost his life. But he has been hanging around in this tent for many years now. Um, and for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, he wrote to the Philippians. It's hard to stop a guy with that kind of a mindset. It really is. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And this is what he's going to. After he does depart from this ragged body, he is going to be with his creator, to be with the one who he has labored for. The righteous judge will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do we love his appearing? Are we looking forward to that day when he returns to bring us home? Think about it. Are you looking forward to it? Or are you kind of scared? There is a bit of fright that comes with it. You know that he will judge your works. He will separate the good from the bad. The bad will be burnt up, remembered no more, and the good will be kept. If we are eagerly awaiting that day, our lives should reflect it. If you are awaiting a baby to be born, there are certain preparations that you make for that baby. In the same way, if we are eagerly awaiting Christ's return, then there are some things that we should prepare for him. Maybe tidy up some things in our lives. It just has that effect on us. So do we love his appearing? Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. 
Now we see a little tone shift with Paul. Uh, there's certain scholars who think that this was written in the same letter at a different point in time. It is possible. It's also possible that he just had a shift in tone. Okay, so be diligent to come to me quickly. I kind of view verse 9 through the end of this chapter as kind of Paul's housekeeping list. You know, there are certain things that we have to do in the church. Somebody's got to cut the grass. Somebody's got to take the trash out, make the coffee, pay the bills. There are certain things that don't require you to sit and pray and deliberate whether you need to do them or not. They just have to be done, right? It's the same way with Paul here. He's talking to Timothy now about very necessary things, but, you know, things that aren't as spiritual in nature. He's going to ask him for a coat because he's cold. You need a coat when you're cold. He's going to ask for books because he wants to read. He wants to continue gaining knowledge. And these are just things that have to be said. General communications. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. So current events in Paul's life, he is relaying to Timothy. He says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Now, this word for departed in this verse is different than in verse 6. We saw that Paul said, the time of my departure is at hand. Different words there. The departure in verse 6 is talking about a loosening of things woven or a dissolving into separate parts. It is also sometimes used as a metaphor uh, drawn from loosing from moorings before you set sail. So you're loosing the ship from the dock so that you can actually take sail. And that's the idea that he's, he's giving us there, loosing his ship to set sail. In this verse here, verse 10, uh, departed means to travel or to go on one's way, very simply. Okay, so he's just saying, Demas has left me. He's gone. He's gone to Thessalonica. And then he goes on to say, Crescens for Galatia and Titus for Dalmatia. It's interesting to look at Paul's mentions of Demas throughout his letters. Okay, at the end of his letter to the Philemons, uh, he writes that Demas is his fellow laborer. It's a fairly endearing term he uses for Demas. Then in the letter to the Colossians, he removes that description of a fellow laborer. He just says, yeah, Demas is here. He greets you. Now here in 2 Timothy, Demas has left Paul in the dungeon and has departed for Thessalonica. I think it is possible that Paul started to see that tide turn in Demas's heart earlier than maybe even when Demas knew it. It's just this subtle degradation of how he views Demas. It does appear that way. These other two that are mentioned, Crescens and Titus, were sent to Galatia and Dalmatia, respectively. 
And Paul doesn't seem to place any fault on these two. He is simply telling Timothy where they were sent. And it is cool that we know how big the church in Dalmatia was. Um, I've heard that it is 101 Dalmatians in that church. Okay. Making sure you're still with me. Verse 11, he says, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Luke had traveled with Paul for much of Paul's journeys. And I think it was by divine appointment that these two met because Luke, this doctor, physician, was the perfect companion for Paul. Uh, We know that Paul struggled with his health as he moved on through his missionary journeys, uh, writing about his eyes and uh, definitely needing some healing from the beatings that he took and uh, everything along those lines. But here was Luke, his faithful companion, the physician, uh, sticking it out with Paul. He also says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. What a redemption, okay? Back in Acts 15, towards the end of the chapter, we have recorded this little tiff between Paul and Barnabas, and it's over Mark. We see that Paul vehemently was opposed to taking Mark with them on their next missionary journey. Barnabas, being a relative to Mark, was like, no, he's fine. Let him come with us. And they were both just planting their foot in the dirt. And it eventually led to their splitting apart and going in separate directions, um, spreading the gospel to more areas, incidentally. Um, But they did have this sharp disagreement over Mark. Remember, Paul was against taking Mark. But now in his letter to Timothy, he says, make sure you bring Mark. He's useful to me now in ministry. So we see this this change. Um, It is an interesting little study uh, of redemption. And, you know, I think that there's probably a little bit of an underlayer here. I think that Paul might be saying something else to Timothy in telling him to bring Mark with him. You see, when Mark departed from Paul, Timothy was kind of the guy that took his place, in quotes. So it is possible that Paul, in saying to Timothy, hey, bring Mark with you too, he's guarding Timothy from being puffed up with pride that he kind of took Mark's place. Interesting to think about, but for a younger guy who is just coming into his maturity and leadership, that may have been on Paul's mind. Either way, it is a beautiful picture of this redemption for Mark. And verse 12, he says, And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. The Greek would read but here at the beginning of 12. Instead of and, it would read but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So it would read something like this. This is kind of the thing that he's trying to get across. You, Timothy, are to come to me in Rome, but I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus to look over the church while you're away. So he's sending Tychicus in 
to look over this church at Ephesus, which Timothy was presiding over, um, just as a little, you know, here's this guy to replace you while you're here with me. Very simple. Antichicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Now bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. Carpus must have been a trusted friend for Paul to have left such precious effects with him his cloak, and we see his books and his parchments. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Paul's want for his cloak and books tells us a couple of interesting things about his condition in this dungeon. In this dungeon. First, physically, he was cold. Okay, He needed a cloak to clothe him. We know that it's about to be winter because he tells Timothy a little bit later to try to come before winter. He needed that cloak to stay warm. But also, he wanted Timothy to bring his books. He still wanted to read. Growing up, we know his teacher Gamaliel said that his biggest trouble with this little boy Saul was keeping him in the books. He would just read through them. He had to keep tossing books at him. Hey, take this one. So we know that he was an avid reader. And obviously he was a very smart guy. He still had a thirst for knowledge. And his mind was still sharp. Even up to the end. Especially the parchments. It's possible that these parchments contain some of Paul's inspired writings. We don't know, but interesting to consider. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You must also be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May not be charged against them. 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. This is possibly the same Alexander who was at Ephesus. We can look at 1 Timothy 1.20. He refers to an Alexander. He says, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So both Alexanders are painted in a negative light, which tends to point to they're the same guy. Um, I think that they probably are the same guy, but I will leave that up to you to decide. It seems that whoever he was, he testified against Paul and had some hand in Paul's imprisonment. He was some kind of a contributor to that trial, which got Paul thrown in jail. You also must beware of him for he has greatly resisted our words. So Paul also wants to warn Timothy of this Alexander, uh, seeing that he may be a threat to Timothy's ministry, and not just Alexander himself, but people like Alexander. Because even if Alexander is no problem to Timothy, there certainly will be people who resist Timothy's words, like Alexander did to Paul. So uh, a warning there, 16, at my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me, may not be charged against them. 
the language here seems to indicate that Paul is informing Timothy of this for the first time right here. Okay, but Timothy was with Paul during his first imprisonment, and he would have already known what had transpired during that first imprisonment. If you want a reference for that, uh, Timothy being with Paul, uh, try Philippians 1, 1, and 1, 7. Those together tell us that Timothy was with Paul at that first imprisonment. Thus, Paul must be speaking about his first trial. He says that my first offense, that first trial that led to his second imprisonment. Okay. Now, his second imprisonment, he is now writing in the midst of to Timothy. He's informing him of what kind of things transpired to put him in jail. Possibly out of fear for their own lives, those who were once with Paul actually fled during his trial. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me, may not be charged against them. If his first charge was in association with the setting fire of Rome um, under Nero, which is very likely uh, since they were rounding up Christians for that, it would have been, well, it would have made sense that the other Christians who were with Paul fled because their lives would have also been in danger uh, just because the Romans were blaming the Christians for those fires. They were rounding them up and executing them. Um, Paul does wish that their fleeing would not be charged against them. And here we hear some echoes of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that same heart of Jesus we see coming out in Paul may it not be charged against them. So assuming that the first trial was concerning that fire in Rome, it was probably Paul's absence from Rome that led him to being acquitted from that charge. Um, he was let go from that trial. And then the second charge, which ultimately led to his second imprisonment, was probably involving the introduction of a new and illegal, unlawful religion in Rome, Christianity. And so that is probably what they got him on the second time and actually put him in prison for. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Uh, that meaning put strength in me. So the Lord stood with me and put his strength in me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. There's a couple interpretations that you can take here. The lion, I believe, probably refers to Satan. It could also be referring to Nero, but I would invite you to look at the sentence after that. In verse 18, he says, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work. That tends to make me think that he's talking about Satan, since he also says that he will deliver me from every evil work. 
And we know that Peter also referred to Satan as a lion. We see that in the verse that we already read this morning, 1 Peter 5, 8. He says, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, referring to Satan. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now in 19, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Now, Onesiphorus was previously mentioned in 2 Timothy. That would be chapter 1, verse 16 area. Um, He was mentioned as being a faithful servant. We know that Paul loved Onesiphorus. Uh, He had a soft spot in his heart for him. But this Onesiphorus was probably absent at the point of Paul's writing, probably because he had passed away. Um, Paul, instead of addressing Onesiphorus directly, saying, hey, greet Onesiphorus, he says to greet the household of Onesiphorus. And he uses the same phrase, the same language, earlier in the first chapter when he mentions Onesiphorus. 21, do your utmost to come before winter. There would have been a couple of reasons why he would want Timothy to come before winter. One, winter would make travel much more difficult at this time. And also, Paul wanted his cloak before it got really cold, obviously. So verse 22, oh, 21, finishing up, 21. Eubulus greets you as well as Puddins, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Again, we see grace. Paul closes with grace. Uh, We know that, like I said earlier, he used grace more than any other writer in the New Testament. Um, And it was certainly close to his heart coming out of a life of persecuting Christians. He needed God's grace and God's mercy uh, just to live with himself, I'm sure. But this beautiful picture of grace as we close the letter from Paul to Timothy. We will continue on through the pastoral epistles, moving into Titus next week, Lord willing. And let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer.